You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi there, welcome to the show. It's Tuesday the 18th of January. Cold and grey here in TW11 today as we build up to the Clarence House chase at Ascot on Saturday. I'll be talking to Kim Bailey, trainer of defending champion First Flow, and also Chris Stickles with an update on the state of conditions. Ronan McNally, outspoken Irish trainer, joins the programme once again, this time to express his dissatisfaction at the reaction of his horse's performance after drifting notably in the betting at Warwick on Saturday. Sean Tugel from Gainesway Farm, the historic Gainesway Farm in Kentucky, is my guest as we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's. And in a few moments' time, you'll be hearing from the Chief Executive of the Racecourse Association, David Armstrong, a regular on this programme, about some figures that have been published in today's Racing Post as regards racecourse attendances, particularly post-COVID. And their senior writer, Lee Mottisett, is with me now. So do these figures tell us anything? They do, Nick. They tell us that um, from that period where where crowds started returning to to racecourses after the easing of COVID restrictions up until November, the, the average crowd was the lowest we've had at any point in this century. So an average crowd of 3,303 people from... July the 19th through to November the 30th. That compares to 3,853 in 2019 and a high of 5,000 in 2003. The average attendance for jumps meetings over that period was less than 3,000 people. It had been 3,246 in 2019. On the flat, it dropped from 4,118 to 3,467. So, Crowds have been down. Um, that continues a trend that has been going on over a longer period of time. The question now is how do we analyse those numbers? Yes, and the question is why are those numbers going down? David Armstrong, as you might expect, the Chief Executive of the Racecourse Association, is a little less concerned. Uh, well, Nick, I don't, I, I'm actually not worried by what we've seen so far in terms of the numbers. Um, well, what you saw, of course, when people came back to spectator sport and including horse racing naturally eh, from July, July, August, September time was still a nervousness about attending public events. And that's been the same pattern you've seen in other sports as well. So it's not, it's not just racing. Uh, and that and that nervousness continues, and it probably continues to this day, to be honest, as we've seen the Omicron variant come through and that sort of thing. So it's difficult to tell yet uh, what, what the scale of that impact is. So I don't think we're yet at a point where we're really comparing like with like. David, is it, is it fair to deduce that the festivals are holding up well, but the, the single days are faring rather less well overall? I think it might be a, a bit too early to tell. I mean, the festivals have done well and, and early bookings for 2022 are very encouraging as well. But of course, after the 19th of July, um, we we saw Goodwood, which had some restrictions still in place, and then York come through and do well. Uh, and some of the other meetings have been lower. But it is still the impact of this thing about people still not quite back into their old routine, including going racing. A festival is always a very special occasion for those that come to it. And as people look to treat themselves following the end of the pandemic and the end of lockdown, it's not surprising that they might choose a festival as, a, as their first day back out again, if you like. 
I think what we saw in October and November, where across those two months, the comparison with 2019 was roughly flat, uh, is is much more realistic as to what we're going to see in the future. But when we see when we see December's numbers, I'm not sure what they'll show us yet, because, of course, we still had some restrictions in December. David, what would you say to the idea that given how event-driven so many of the racecourses are and how much of their marketing spend goes in that direction, that it's in fact that real hardened fan that we're losing fastest here? Or maybe I'd put it as being the slowest to return as opposed to losing. Um, But what you'll see over the coming months is quite a lot of marketing activity, both from racecourses and from uh, GBR centrally on behalf of the sport, to try and address that issue and to to try and encourage former racecores or pre-pandemic racecores, if I can call them that, back onto the racecourse. But not only those people, also looking to attract new fans, new racecores to the courses as well. So we're not sitting back and, and comfortably thinking everything's okay. There's significant marketing activity already started in the case of some of the courses you mentioned, but also more generally for the sport coming through now into 2022. David Armstrong, their chief executive of the Racehorse Association. I said to David Armstrong, Lee, before I chatted to him that you know, there was a job going for him in, in government as a spin doctor if he wanted one. He can, he can put a good gloss on it. That is his job. He has faith. He is an optimist. I just wonder whether we have slightly misunderstood what the public's reaction might have been to being allowed to get out and about and do things again because there was a there was a, a temptation to, to to think that as soon as the the gates were open as soon as you were allowed out of your house people would be flooding into every race course in great britain at every conceivable opportunity yeah and that that hasn't necessarily been the case but it is a it is a confusing picture because you look at some examples for example just plucking one out the the, the november saturday at Cheltenham, um, had an attendance last year, this season, of 33,668, which was bigger than in 2017, 18 and 19. Um, A number of days have had very strong figures. York's Ebor meeting did extremely well this year. Ebor Saturday went from 27,000 in 2018, 28,000 in 2019 to 29,000 in 2021. But generally speaking, I think some racecourses have been struggling. Now, I think some racecourses haven't necessarily as yet been chasing crowds as as hard as they might have done in the past. The most notable example of that being Ascot, which we've been reading about has already set lower um, lower attendance limits for the Royal Meeting this year. And I think that's partly guided by the experience of what they found uh, in 2021, when a lot of racegoers report that they actually enjoyed being in environments where, where there were fewer people in there. And my goodness, there really were few people on some days. If you look at particularly at the Shergar Cup, for example, that went from 31,000 people, Nick, in 2018 to 23,000 people in 2019 to only 11,000 people in 2021. Uh, the, the ledger at Donkers this year went from 27,000, 28,000 in most recent years to 23,000 this year. So I think some race courses really have struggled to get to get crowds back um david armstrong has made the point and it's a fair point that what that the the advanced sales for a lot of the big festivals in 2022 have been strong but i think that tallies with a a wider move nick in which people tend to be booking tickets now for events they want to go to as opposed to just rocking up on the day i remember being at cheltenham on new year's day and ian renton um, was pointing out there that in the past, New Year's Day would have been the biggest 
biggest day when people will just turn up at the races mm-hmm. almost as, as, a, as a an impromptu decision oh we're going to go racing that didn't happen this year and it doesn't happen now so i think the fact that we're seeing more advanced sales is merely reflective of the way that people are planning to go to to an event um and i just say in a wider sense as well the, the picture really is confusing. I'm a big theatre goer, Nick. I know that a lot of yeah. theatres and a lot of shows have been advertising half price tickets for January and February, and, I, and I've I've made the most of that. But equally, I saw three shows last week, two of which played to to packed seller audiences. Yeah. So for certain things, people are very much prepared to return to what they used to do, but not for everything. What did you make of my point to David Armstrong about? Uh, the the extent to which COVID has affected racing's hardcore fan base. Yeah, I mean that's 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 probably that's probably fair. And also, if you look at the demographic of racing's hardcore fan base, I wonder if that's a factor too. Because um, they're that they're that bit older and are that bit more vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Ascot. There are still horses and races that will get bums on seats, get people through the turnstiles, and Shishkin against an argument should do at Ascot this uh, this Saturday afternoon. What sort of ground will these two horses be racing on? I've been speaking to the clerk of the course, Chris Stickles. Well, at the moment, we're soft, um, Nick, and the, the forecast really is for this sort of dry weather to continue. We've got a high pressure here. Uh, we've got a sharp frost this morning. It was down to minus one, so it's pretty, it's pretty white here this morning as we speak. Um, tomorrow, Wednesday, is due to be a little milder. We're not expecting a frost tomorrow morning, and then a frost again sort of, Thursday morning, Friday morning, and a little bit Saturday morning. I don't think it's going to change hugely. We'll probably end up with with uh, a mixture of soft and maybe a bit of good to soft, um, but generally dry forecast. And we shall we shall cover with um, we shall cover the shaded area under the grandstand and the, and the takeoffs and landings um, by Wednesday evening. Uh, ready for for I think it's the coldest morning will be Thursday morning. So um, yeah, should be pretty reasonable ground for for January. Any danger in in terms of frost, or are you not worried given the forecast you've got? No, the forecast isn't that severe. I mean, I think it's, we, we're just we're just taking you know being cautious, really, in case temperatures do dip a little lower than, than perhaps forecast. But uh, but but given the current forecast, you know, we're, we're covering what we're planning to cover will uh, will protect us. So no danger as regards the frost, according to, to Chris Stickles. They're covering the vulnerable areas. Uh, Dave Yates Lee said yesterday on this show that tightening ground would play in Shishkin's favour. Are you inclined to agree with that if they both turn up? Uh, yes, I think I would. Yeah, I think he has uh, an enormous amount of speed and class. I think he'd be perfectly happy on a drier surface. I think the most important thing, Nick, is that that we just see this race, this race happen. I think I think there's probably something in all of us that is thinking that between now and 10 a.m. on Thursday, when declarations are made, one of the big two um, will defect for whatever reason. I hope that that doesn't happen. Nicky Henson certainly was adamant. Um, at Kempton on Saturday that he wanted to run the horse and he's repeated that since then and there's a reason behind that too because he is happier running the horse in mid-Jan as opposed to mid-Feb on the way to the the champion chase he prefers the Clarence House to the game spirit as a prep for the champion chase and Willie Mullins has been saying for some time that this was his next intended target for an ergamain. So let's hope we get there. Um, Ed Chamberlain, your broadcast colleague on ITV, was was selling the, 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 the clash in the racing post this morning as something that racing really has to big up. And it's exactly the sort of race that we've been saying for so long you, you want to have in this in this period. We want these big matchups, not just at the Cheltenham Festival, but on the way to the, the Cheltenham Festival. I think what, what is interesting, Nick, is the, is the betting. I'm a... I'm a big Shishkin fan, and in a head-to-head, I would be preferring Shishkin 
to an ergamine. But I, I do think it's interesting that, that one bookmaker is as short as five to two on Shishkin and eleven to four in ergamine. I'm not sure that the yeah. that from what I've seen of the two horses, there's that sort of difference between them. And I don't think that's the betting we're gonna get on the day. Well, you know what happens when you talk up a race as a two-horse race. Uh, the third man comes to spoil the party. But it would hardly be outlandish if First Flow were to repeat his success in the race from 12 months ago. Kim Bailey joins me now. Kim, how unencumbered do you feel until people like me ring you up, that is? Well, I mean, it's, it's always a delight to talk to you because you spoke to me before the Peterborough Chase. So perhaps I can look upon it as a sort of golden moment of my career, the fact that you've ring me twice in one season on the same horse. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's, it's, just why you, it's, it's a fantastic race, Nick. And it's uh, and it, uh, you know, if everybody stands their ground, it's going to be a wonderful spectacle for, and it's great for racing. Do you see the presence of a horse like Enegumen, for example? We'll talk about Shishkin in a minute, but a horse who is a, a bit of a trailblazer, a pretty onward-bound horse. Do you see, see him being in any way problematic to your chances? Well, at the end of it, I mean, first flow has done it every way, really. I mean, you know, he won a handicap round there, having crashed through the first three or four fences and, and had to come from behind. Um, and he's also done it the other way round. So, you know, he is what he is and you're not going to change him. Um, it'll be, it, you know, if David Bass decides to jump off upsides in front, then it's going to be a furious pace, and it'll be, it'll be a question of who's still there at the end. But uh, um, the one thing with David and I, we we don't discuss tactics because whatever I say, he won't listen to anyway. Of course, we had this little bit of byplay before the Peterborough Chase, where you thought the horse would stay. David wasn't convinced he would stay, given the fact that he did stay two and a half miles, and and Saturday's race is two miles and a furlong. Given he stayed two and a half miles so well, do you think that'll give him the confidence to to be even more aggressive than otherwise he would be? Well, it, it probably will do, but having said that, there's only limitations of how fast you can go. So, um, and, you know, if you can't go fast enough, you can't go fast enough, and that's going to be the the, the, the big question, really. I mean, um, Willie's horse is a horse that's obviously got tremendous gears, um, and uh, um, we're probably not quick enough to go with him. I don't know. We're, time will tell. Uh, how do you read the, the big two, then? Who do you think's better, an argument or Shishkin? Well, I'm a huge Shishkin fan because I've seen more of him. Um, and uh, I thought his performance last time out, when he supposedly wasn't one hundred percent right, was very impressive. Um, you know, he's done he's done nothing wrong in his entire career. He's a phenomenal jumper, um, and you know, Nico rides him with such confidence. Um, he's so like Algier in the many respects that he produces his horses to run like that. So, um, I, you know, they're they're big scalps and they're unbelievably good horses. I'm just very proud that my horse is even there, quite honestly. Has your horse got an even bigger effort in him than he's produced so far in his career? Well, he's 10 years old now, Nick. I mean, surely he's got to his peak by now, I would have thought. Um, you know, you said to me after, after his last run, you know, why don't you supplement him for the King George? I mean, I, you know, I, I think he will stay. And, uh, you know, this has been his target all season. You know, it's, it's wonderful to have a horse that, that can go back and try and retain his crown. But we've got, a, you know, we've got another race at Ascot in a month's time, which is over two mile five. And that, that'll be his next run, all being well. Uh, I noticed you were represented potentially in the Lingfield Winter Million this weekend. Two for gold's name stood out at me. Yeah, I mean that's been the plan. That's been the plan to run in that race since they announced the race. Quite honestly, he loves soft ground. Two mile six is probably his right trip. 
um, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an extraordinary thing to have uh, um, that much prize money on offer on in a place like Lingfield. So it's it's very good that it's happening, and uh, um, you know the, the record of the race has shown in the past that, that it hasn't taken place this weekend. So it's, and it looks like it will be, which will be, it'll be tiring your ground, which will suit him. We floated the idea on the podcast yesterday and spoke to Nicky Henderson about the idea that uh, jumping could return to Windsor Racecourse next year. It seems more of a, a probability than a possibility. How how do you fancy that? Well, I, I would dearly love it because I was I was one of the leading trainers at Windsor when it was before it disappeared, and uh, um, it was a great race course to go racing. And I, and I you know, it really would be good news to have a, another race course to go to. And what what was it about it that you liked? Um, I just thought it was a, it was a very fair track, and it was, you know, it's a figure of eight um, and uh, flat. Um, I don't know, long straight. It seemed to suit my horse at that particular moment in time. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was always a very welcoming course, and it was a nice place to take owners to. Um, it was a nice place to have a day's racing. So um, um, we miss it, and I think it'd be great to have it back. Kim Bailey there. Uh, Lee, just tidying up some other news. In common with many now, Harry Charlton is joining his father, Roger, on the trainer's licence. Jewel Derby winning trainer Roger Charlton, of course. Um, entirely uh, sensible, entirely merited Roger Charlton, um, who actually is celebrating his 72nd birthday today. So happy birthday, Roger. He's quoted saying that I'd, Harry... I'd have been a seller at 70, wouldn't you? Do you know, I would... 72. Too. I th- Roger is clearly a very young seventy-two. Whatever whatever Roger is doing um, to to maintain his his youthful regime is clearly something that works very well because he looks very good indeed at seventy-two. Um, I saw him on a, I saw him on a dance floor at a, a party a couple of years ago, and it, yeah, you you definitely have been a, a strong seller at seventy. Well, I've got to say this conversation has taken a direction I wasn't necessarily ex- expecting, um, Mr. Luck. But but yeah, I've, I've not seen Roger on a dance floor, but but I'm, I'm sure it's a glorious sight indeed. Probably like Nina Carberry-esque. Um, Harry Charlton, who may also be very good indeed on a dance floor, um, has been working and the operation, uh, Roger says, since 2014. He's an integral part of the operation. He should be part of the... Um, the way that that business is sold. So, um, yeah, congratulations, happy birthday to Roger, and congratulations and good luck to Harry, now a joint licence holder. Uh, Jerry McGrath, who's been a, a second jockey to Nicky Henderson for, for some time, has had to call time on his career, which must be hugely frustrating for him. Jewel Cheltenham Festival winning rider, but he has got many other irons in the fire, Lee. Yeah, he has. Um, he suffered a fall on the all-weather um, around a year ago. It sounds as though reading Jerry's quotes today in the post that he pretty much knew a fair way out, that he was unlikely to get back. Um, he had uh, a really successful career. He was an uh, extremely talented jockey who's having to end his career, sadly, far too soon. But he gets out in one piece and it could have been much worse for him, as he points out. Um, in his quotes, it sounds as though he might be wanting to move towards the bloodstock direction for his future career. But I also know, Nick, that again, going back to Kempton on Saturday, when I was speaking to Nicky Henderson about Shishkin's workout on Saturday morning on the Farringdon Road gallop, Nicky was talking about all the people that were there with him watching that gallop. And he made a point of saying that Jerry McGrath was there and that Jerry had become an increasingly useful uh, addition to him as part of that training setup there so I think there's absolutely no doubt that Jeremy McGrath is really valued within seven barrows um, and I, th- I imagine he will continue to be so and um, given uh, his excellent approach uh, to, to life and the business uh, I'm sure he'll do really well in the future in whatever he chooses to do. 
Right, so interesting and slightly bizarre story in the Yorkshire Post this morning from Tom Richmond, uh, who is quoting James Brennan, the marketing boss at York Racecourse, suggesting a tweaking, uh, his words, not mine, uh, of the name of the Duke of York stakes, the six furlong sprint in May, uh, because of the recent scandal surrounding the current Duke of York, uh, Prince Andrew, or Andrew Windsor, as I suppose he's he's now known. I must confess, Lee, when, when I thought of the Duke of York stakes, I didn't immediately associate it with the current uh, Duke of York for however long he holds that title. But But there you go. I guess you can't be too careful these days. Well, absolutely. Yeah, no, when I was a lad, I thought that the Duke of York was was named after a bloke who marched 10,000 men up a hill, um, mm. as opposed to, to Prince Andrew. Um, James Brennan points out in his quotes that the Duke of York has been staged since 1895 in different shapes and guises. Uh, it was named in honour of Prince George, who went on to become King George V. It has never been directly about Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew, of course, the Duke of York, has had links to, to York Racecourse. I've seen him plenty uh, of occasions, or certainly I've, I've seen him at York Racecourse during the races there. He, he was a, a fan of the races, but um, I can understand why why York might want to distance itself from uh, the brand, if you like, Duke of York. Um, so that race will have a uh, a new name, it seems, in the future. I know not what that will be. Uh, no comment from Sandown Park as to whether the Henry VIII novices chase is likely to have a name change as uh, the old boy was quite fond of wielding the axe, I'm told. There is indeed a rumour to that effect. So cast your mind back Saturday, Warwick, novice handicap hurdle early in the card. Um, horse was very well backed, petrol head, and then drifted out from, I don't know, five to four odd to about five to one. Didn't run any kind of race. Trained in Ireland by Ronan McNally, who's with me now. And uh, Ronan... It would would it be fair to say that you are unhappy with the way that the the, the horse's running was received? Yeah, uh, Nick, very unhappy to be honest. Uh, he uh, in the morning he went down to five to four, which I came out and couldn't understand who backed him into five to four. Was he even ever backed into five to four? Was it a, a bookie's move or what was happening? So uh, the horse never was entitled to be five to four at any point in May in my uh, view, and he actually returned five to one which uh, there seemed to be a big fuss about. And uh, he should have been 5-1 to one or 8-1 to one all day. He was dropping back to two miles from winning over two miles four by half a length. He went up a stone. Uh, he hadn't run in three months. He hadn't come out of the race well from Furry House. So he, uh, there was a lot of... Uh, we were going over in a fact-finding mission to see how he'd cope with, say, uh, travelling to England, racing over two miles. So there was a lot of questions to answer. So... How he was ever five to four is, is, is beyond me. Um, Racing UK, I just thought, uh, seemed to think there was something untoward going on. I asked the BHA after to investigate into batting patterns and uh, to see why he was five to four, why he drifted to five to one. And uh, I was just really annoyed there. There's, you know, if you, if you win with a horse and he runs up a sequence, all of a sudden there's a problem because he's, he's too well handicapped. And then if you don't win, run up a sequence, all of a sudden there's something dubious going on. So it just seems to be you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You can't seem to win at the minute. I mean, if you were if you were laying one of your horses in this country, if you were a bookmaker pricing them up, you'd obviously price them up with a big careful because you've landed a, a right couple of really well-publicised touches. So you'd think, well, I don't know what the price this horse should be, but I don't really want to lay a McNally. And then I suppose if no money at all really comes for him because you don't fancy him and nobody else is backing him, then he could take a rather precipitous walk in the market. I, would you accept that there were people who were prepared to lay him at any price because they knew he would not win? 
No, well, I can't. I I can't uh, tell you one person that wouldn't know would have could have said categorically that horse wouldn't win. If he had a went and won over there on Saturday, I was delighted. I was going over there to to try with two horses. If they both won, sure, I was over the moon. It was it was an ITV racing. Do you know what I mean? So uh, there's not one person in that world should have been able to know to lay that horse at five to one or or whatever price he was. Uh, so have the BHA got back to you? Have they said they will investigate for you? Uh, I, I, they haven't got back to me. I just asked the, uh, the the representative that I was talking to. I asked him uh, if he will investigate into the betting pattern for why he was five to four. First of all, to see was there any money even to put him into five to four, or was it a bookies move? And then uh, also then did he just go to the price he should have been all day anyway, or was there actually a, a somebody that had led him? So uh, I haven't heard any heard what any word back but i will chase it up uh i sort of every time i speak to you i'm getting a sort of less enthusiastic version of ronan mcnally on the phone um are you getting close to packing this in now Ah, oh, look at him. I'm, I'm not enjoying it at all. Uh, the authorities in Ireland are just this case is dragging on for uh, two years with the improvement of form and the real deal. I seen a newspaper article on Saturday and one yesterday saying that the case is going to be concluded next month, which I haven't even been told myself by the authorities that anything about the case or what's going on. Uh, so it's uh, I don't know. The ha- my handicap marks for my last four winners have been twenty two pounds, seventeen pounds, sixteen pounds, fourteen pounds. Like, I don't see anyone else getting those those hikes. Uh, I'm having horses win by half a length, getting fourteen pounds. It's just getting ah, uh, look, it's not. It's, it's, it's becoming very unenjoyable. Uh, I had a great day with the jam man, but that day was ruined uh, because all this nonsense with petrol head. Uh, like you know, who in their right mind could have said that horse is a five to four shot and an eighteen runner competitive race in in uh, in England where Nicky Henderson and and all the big trainers at horses? You know, it's just a lunacy. Um, I suppose the the obvious way of responding is is sort of action speaking louder than words. C- can you get either the Jam Man or the Real Deal to Cheltenham, and you can can you get them to Cheltenham with a winning chance? Uh, I could get uh, the real deal uh, I don't know to be honest at the moment there he's just not firing on all cylinders so he won't run until I sort of have him back but John Mann realistically would have a live chance in the Bertemps there but uh, look at to train horses as well look at you have to be enjoying it but if you start to take this whole nonsense starts to take the enjoyment out of it. Like you can't go and have a winner nowadays now without people giving off in some uh, form or another. Uh, it's uh, yeah, John Mann definitely would have a live chance in the Bertrand sir if we can get him there in one piece and he improves for for Saturday. Ronan McNally there, Lee, um, sounding rather less chipper than than has been the case in the past. Yes, he does not sound like um, a happy man there um, in that conversation, Nick. Um, The reality, however, is um, that for right or for wrong, um, bookmakers um, and um, I'd say the media as well, when they, when we look at um, the the form of horses trained by Rona McNally on a race card, there is often, I say for right or wrong, very little confidence that the form those horses have shown in the past will in any way have um, a correlation with the form those horses show when they race um, on the day itself. So I, I can understand why Mr. McNally is disappointed, but I know full well that if I was a bookmaker and I was having to uh, put up a price on a Rona McNally trained horse, I would be uh, incredibly careful. Um, so again, I can see 
why he is disappointed and angry. But equally, um, I think there is an alternative point of view that explains why things are as they are. Well, it's Tuesday, and that means we go around the world of Bloodstock with our friends at Weatherby's, their stallion book and their global stallion app, on which and in which you will find some of the most illustrious stallions, not only in Europe, but also standing in North America as well. And if you flick through at present and chance upon the names Caraconti, Raging Bull, Tappet, and frankly, why wouldn't you, McKinsey, Spun to Run and Tappet, you will find that they're all housed at the ridiculously historic Gainesway Farm in Kentucky, from where Sean Tugel, who's the director of Stallion Sales, joins me now. Uh, Sean, to say this is an historic establishment is to is to sell it short. It's a sort of cascading fall of, of, of great names in bloodstock that have contributed to, to what Gainesway is today. I'm not quite sure where to start. Perhaps you can dial us somewhere back near the beginning. Yeah, um, certainly it's, it's an incredible... Uh, piece of property and, and Anthony Beck, the Beck family, Graham Beck purchased uh, Gainesway now going on 33 years ago from, from John Gaines. And the original property obviously goes way back to the uh, original land grant and the Elmendorf farm and, and the Hagens and um, and now uh, now to the Becks and, and through the Whitney families. Um, it, it really is an incredible place and, and it's a special place to drive people around Um you know, La Troyen is buried on the farm. Uh, Tom Fool's buried on the farm. Regret the 1915 um, Kentucky Derby winner trained on the train track that's still there on the farm, and she's buried on the farm. You know, next to Peter Pan and and Mahmoud and Winning Colors, who the Graham family purchased back in the, the early 90s. She's also buried on the farm. So it's certainly one of those places that. Uh, you don't have to go very far to find uh, some spectacular history in our industry, that's for sure. Just even in those few sentences, you evoke the names of the Whitney family, His Highness the Aga Khan, John Gaines himself, the man who conceived the Breeders' Cup. Uh, you've been involved in, in Windstar Farm at Hillendale. You've been in Lexington for nearly 20 years. You know, When you walk around this place every day, do you, do you feel that sense of responsibility, a, a, a custodianship of the sport? It's, it's certainly... Um... It, I think as as you as you are in the sport longer and and you get to be around some pretty special animals and, and get to read about special animals, um, you know. Recently, uh, Jim Shank, a, a bloodstock agent here in, in Lexington, his wife curated and moderated the uh, Keenan Library for many many years, and uh, he came out to look at the new stallion and Raging Bull, and we were talking, and he ended up sending me some some articles back from the early '80s of John Gaines in an interview and and some pretty interesting things. And, and it was John Gaines's dream to stand a stallion at Gainesway Farm who uh, could could rival Lexington, maybe the greatest stallion of all time. And just this year, Tappet, uh, sired his fourth Belmont Stakes winner, equaling Lexington as the only two horses to ever sire four Belmont Stakes winners. So it's been over 100 years. So it's, it's kind of crazy and, and obviously um, very grateful that, I, that I'm – in the position to be able to, you know, walk 50 yards out my my office to to be able to feed pep, a peppermint to tap it any day I want. So uh, it's pretty it's it's pretty special, and and it certainly is. Um, I, it, it's not taken lightly. I think the longer you're around, the more more you appreciate places like Gainesway and Claiborne and, and some of the places that really made the bluegrass the bluegrass. Let, let's zone in on Tappet, uh, a remarkable racehorse, but a, a much more remarkable uh, progenitor, really, and a, and a, one of those very few stallions that we sometimes refer to as a breed shaper. His progeny are 
unusual. What sets them apart, do you think? As you said, four individual Belmont Stakes winners, a mile and a half is not a common distance in North America. It's not. Um, you know, it's the first time any any three year old's going to run it, and most likely it's the only time they'll ever run it. Um, I think it's it's amazing what he's able to do to produce four four Belmont Stakes winners, and also having produced multiple two year old champions uh, says a lot on his ability to sire a wide range of, of very talented horses. Um, you know, just this year we saw in in this crop alone, we saw his champion two year old which uh, hopefully will be champion three-year-old essential quality who did win the Belmont Stakes. Uh, And then just on the 26th of December, we saw Flightline, who might be his best horse he's ever sired. Uh, The way that that John Sadler, his trainer, and and the people around him and the brilliance that he's he's already shown, uh, you know, going on 21 years of age and and this crop having a two- and three-year-old champion and and possibly the champion sprinter in Flightline, who's maybe his most brilliant. It's, it's pretty incredible, the longevity. 11 of the last 12 years in the top five of the general sires list. He was leading freshman sire when uh, his first two years were there. He has three uh, championship sire uh, list to his credentials as well. So um, it's just really uh, a, a special horse that, you know, it, it, probably, it could be the only time I'm ever this close to a stallion this, uh, this good and also the ability to produce sons who are becoming good sires and his daughters now are just setting remarkable records with with their stakes production. Yeah, ge- genuinely globally influential. Uh, when you get to this point with a stallion like that, when they attain that sort of legendary status and they're starting to kick on a bit in in years as well, how do you how do you manage them? How what, how how do you then decide how to sort of eke out their careers, if you like? Yeah, you know, certainly, um, you know, as horses get a little older. Um, the, the industry wants to kind of look at them as, as it has been. Certainly, uh, Tappet is far from that and, and is still quite, uh, competitive with his younger rivals. But I do think himself and Into Mischief, the only two horses in North America to have over a million dollar covering sire average this past year, uh, are really special and they separate themselves. Um, you know, he, he is going to breed a little bit, uh, of a smaller book this year, closer to 90 versus the 115 he bred last year. His fertility is still very good. Um, he's a horse that as long as we, he can breed two times a day and, and we don't overdo it with him, he gets through his entire book. He's, his fertility has remained extremely good even now in his 20s. Um, so very exciting, and, and people recognize that. I mean, just alone this year, we have the dam of essential quality coming back. Um, we've got Midnight Pursue now uh, booked to him, and uh, you know, the list goes on of just unbelievable uh mares that are going to be visiting him this year so uh he still maintains that extremely high uh quality mare i want to touch a little on on your link with with history again and particularly manifest in raging bull a son of dark angel who we know so well in europe has has done brilliantly and and also Caraconti, an originally European trained winner of the Breeders' Cup Mile, who raced in the Niarcos family. How important is it for you to keep that tradition of sort of European turf sires going in North America? Um, certainly, Gainesway and, and John Gaines. Um, you know, you go down the the memorial fountain of, of great stallions that have stood. Games over the years and it really was based on, uh, you know, kind of turf milers from around the country. Um, and so it's kind of going back to our roots a little bit here with Raging Bull. Um, and, and, you know, those horses that came over, um, 
to stand here and they were turf based, but they, you know, made history by producing dirt runners. And, and if you look at Raging Bull, uh, top and bottom, he certainly has plenty of strains of Northern Dancer, plenty of strains of Mr. Prospector. Um, and, and he stands over a lot of ground with a lot of leg and strength. So he's that kind of horse that I think, um, you know, is by an outstanding sire and dark angel and, uh, can not only hopefully produce outstanding turf horses, but also be able to, you know, cross over and, and produce dirt horses. And that's something that we've seen Caraconti do extremely well and, uh, has helped him, you know, put a nice little foothold into the Kentucky marketplace here, um, where turf sires can be a little bit, you know, behind, the behind the eight ball with, with some American breeders at times, we've, we've seen a nice change in the number of turf races and, and the purses and turf racing go, go on here. So, um, you know, Caraconti has been able to get a Kentucky Derby starter. He's, uh, he's had classic winners, uh, um, in Europe. He's also had, uh, outstanding greatest stakes horses here in America. His best leading runner, Princess Grace is almost a millionaire millionaire now, um, just turning five grade one place. So, you know, his smallest crop of two-year-olds were this past season. Um, so his best bred books, uh, both in numbers and quality are coming. And just that ability to get both great stakes winners on dirt and turf, um, you know, it, it gives you a, a, a larger breadth of the, uh, the industry that uh, recognize you and, and more advantage to be able to get more mares. The industry has plenty of challenges. Do you see enough around you every day to remain optimistic that it can, that it can stay successful? You know, I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of guy every day of my life. Um, so I always believe that, uh, that there's always positives to come. Um, I do think our, uh, our industry as a whole has a lot to look forward to. Um, you know, you got to go through some tough times to get back to the good times. It's an industry of highs and lows, and that doesn't mean just the horses, but also the people sometime and the industry as a whole. So um, I think we've gone through some low times recently. But uh, I do think, you know, I see a lot of my peers who uh, we work with quite a bit and uh, I see a lot of positive positivity. I see a lot of, you know, very intellectual, uh, hungry, young people who have a real passion for the game. And, uh, you know, I think when when you allow people who have passion for the game to be involved, then, uh, then that passion can carry over and create some great things. Sean Tugel there from Gainesway Farm. Thanks to Sean and thanks to all my guests today. Lee is still with me, has a tip for you. I do, Nick. In the 310 at Exeter, the Racing TV Free for a Month Handicap Hurdle, I am going with a horse called Templier, number nine. has had good form over fences of late. I'm hoping that form can be replicated over hurdles. Templier in the 310 at Exeter. All right, Lee, thanks so much. That was Tuesday, January the 18th. We'll be back with you to do it all over again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.